on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today is the Australian dairy industry contracts. It's the opposite in the US. The US dairy industry has a growth mindset to where we're going to continue to grow. We have demand to meet not only domestically but in the export market and global market, figuring out you know, how do we make that happen. Part of it is just a, a psychology to where we're going to grow, not, not shrink. And the latest corn harvest in the northwest. I start with my hand in between the stalk and the cob and it's just a case of getting leverage and just snapping it off. And most of the time they'll snap off pretty cleanly. Sometimes they end up with a long bit of stalk on them so you've got to snap them again to clean them up. Yeah, when you get going you can pick with two hands two rows straight through yes sweet corn picking in the northwest yum and the expansion of the dairy industry in the u.s those stories coming up on this monday g'day tony with you we're also today we look at the ramifications of the collapse of the big mainland transport company scott's and how is that affecting Tasmanian produce getting to various parts of the mainland? And indeed, how is the distribution of produce here in the state affected? That story coming up for you in just a moment. Also today, the huge growth in horticulture in the country. Closer ties with India for Australian wool. Plus, we'll check the latest on the weather with that uh, emergency warning for the northwest and the Furneaux Islands. We'll uh, have a look at that detailed look. And your thoughts on any issues via the text line on 0438922936. 0438922936 is that number. First up, the trucking industry and trucking companies in Tasmania are liaising with local producers to ensure their goods are distributed to the mainland after the demise of giant trucking company Scots Logistics. Robert Miller, the CEO of Brighton-based transport company SRT, says deliveries of product throughout Tasmania are continuing as normal as Scots do not have a presence in the state. He says the collapse of Scots shows how tough the situation is with the transport industry here in Tasmania and also nationwide. Uh, look, it's hard to know, obviously, the inner workings of another company and the you know finer details of how and why they've hit the situation they have, but you know, I guess broadly as an industry, um, you know, like a lot of industries at the moment, we're certainly languishing with, uh, you know, driver shortages and lots of strains like that. So, you know, I think from what I've, you know, can understand about that business, that certainly impacted them where, you know, a lot of investment in a lot of heavy fleet that gets parked up because there's not enough people to drive them. What happens in Tasmania with regard to deliveries to and from the supermarkets? Uh, both Coles and Woolworths and the IGA stores have, you know, local warehouses that, that pick and pack orders for the stores that various companies distribute. In our case, we do do the work for Woolworths and IGA. So it's where, you know, most of their product is warehoused in Tasmania and distributed around the island from there. So there's no presence as such of Scots? No, no, they have no footprint in Tasmania. Any national distribution deals they have, you know, they would forward through other freight companies. In our case, that's not us. Should consumers in Tasmania be concerned about the prospect of similar things happening with uh, transport companies down here? Oh, look, I think everyone in our industry is under some sort of pressure. You know, it's been a tumultuous couple of years, I guess, with uh, COVID and, uh, you know, rising fuel costs, rising employment costs, employee shortages where we can't fill roles. But, you know, to my knowledge, yes, everyone's under pressure, but I'm not aware of any you know, specific companies in our state that are that are in Scott's situation. You know, the marketplace for us in Tasmania is very different to what it is on mainland Australia and it's a, you know, slightly different set of circumstances. How tough has it been over the last couple of years to run a company like yours? 
Oh, look, it's extremely difficult. You know, we, we're close to around 400 employees around the island. Single most biggest challenge in our business right now is actually finding workers. You know, we've got countless jobs online that are open, you know, seats that we can't fill, you know, trucks that aren't working during the day because there's just not enough people to drive them. So, you know, it places a lot of strain on the people that are at work and um, and are doing their jobs and doing the best they can. And, um, you know, we're constantly working, trying to, trying to backfill the roles and positions that we have available. How many positions, um, just off the top of your head, on a daily basis, do you need how many more workers? Uh, we could fill 15 to 20 jobs tomorrow. Why aren't they there? Look, I think it's a number of reasons. I think the unemployment rate in Tasmania, you know, is low to a level that it's bordering on nearly full practical employment, really. You know, three years ago to now, if we put a job ad out there, we get a certain amount of applicants. You know, these days we can put some job ads up and get absolutely zero applicants. And that's in hospitality, that's in everything. Specifically in our industry, it's a number of factors. It's a fairly mature age workforce out there driving trucks. And obviously, you know, the rate of, you know, participants in the workplace that are retiring, you know, they're retiring at a certain amount every year. And we don't have the young ones coming through to replace them. So that's, that's probably one. And I think the COVID international border shut down for the year or two there, you know, nationally across Australia and, and here in Tasmania, probably fairly reliant on international arrivals to fill certain roles. With borders shut, that obviously slowed up as well. And, and I know particularly on the mainland that, um, you know, two years is a long time to sort of cut a fairly significant supply of workers into a certain industry. And it's the same with every transport company in the state? Yeah, the best of my knowledge, like, you know, talk to other operators, they're all having the same challenge, they're all saying the same thing, you know, and very much nationally. Again, on the mainland, it's probably even worse. I note that you're asking retired drivers, uh, advertising for them to come back, do weekend shifts. Are you getting any response? Uh, yeah, look, we're getting little wins here and there, and, and as a business, we're trying to get more creative in, you know, how we advertise and look for workers, you know, more creative in how we can employ them, more flexible in the kind of work we can offer. You know, and that's what we've got to do. We've got to meet the challenge of the day and make our industry more aspiring to want to work in as well. You know, maybe there's a certain stigma with what it looks like to be a truck driver, but, you know, my 25 years in the industry, it's changed an awful lot. You know, the equipment that we put on the road now is, you know, much safer, much easier to drive. Lots, you know, all sorts of safety technology. They're very comfortable. They're quiet. It's not, um, most trucks are automatic now. You know, it's, it's a much more pleasant task than what it used to be in years gone by you know safety and compliance and all of these things have all really accelerated in the last decade so you know from a career and an income point of view it's um it's not a bad option but you know we've got to find a way to convince young people that there is genuine career paths there Robert Miller, CEO of SRT Logistics, is our guest on the Country Hour, talking about the problems with Scots Transport and uh, how the transport industry in Tasmania is going at the moment. And Robert, you mentioned that word change. How do you think the possibility of electric will change things down the track? Yeah, obviously change a lot of things. You know, we're still a fair way off large fleets en masse being fully electric. There's all sorts of challenges like charging infrastructure, you know, all sorts of things to play out in that space yet, but it is developing and it is coming. How it changes it with from a workforce point of view and that kind of thing, probably not fundamentally. The task to still, you know, operate a heavy vehicle and deliver and collect goods is essentially the same. It's just the power source of the vehicle that changes. Margins are tight. It is a very small margin return kind of industry. You either, you know, I think you either operate one truck and drive it yourself or or you have lots and there's not, not really any in-between. Things that have made it more difficult there, 
you know, costs in compliance and safety and really ramping up those areas and being able to manage all of that thing, you know, it takes a lot of people in the back end, you know, a lot of administrative cost increase to do all of that and do it well. But as an industry, you know, I think we've embraced that really well and we're doing a really good job at that, but it does add cost, you know, and, you know, so you've constantly got to try and recover that cost and things like fuel prices and that, you know, in our sector, we, we do pass that on to our customers, not like transport companies. Lots of people complain about it, but depending what sector of the industry you're in, you know, most of us do pass that on to clients, you know, so it sort of really hurts everyone in the in the production side of, you know, those that create the goods that we distribute, you know, and ultimately the consumers where the cost is worn. Do you think there'll be any further spin-offs from what's happened with Scots on the mainland? Do you think it'll hurt your business at all? Uh, not specifically us. We ship goods to and from Tassie, so we've got an operation in Melbourne and up in Sydney, so... You know, we are involved in that sector where they are, um, where I guess, you know, there's some risk to Tasmanian producers is that companies like Scott's, once they ship goods to the mainland, whether it's with us or some of our competitors, people like Scott's, you know, then then do the rest of the national service for them that might be getting goods to Adelaide or Sydney or Brisbane or wherever it is. So, you know, we're aware of a few of our clients already that, that we might do the first part for and someone like Scott's does the second part. So... We're already talking to those clients how we can um, try and step in and fill that gap for them and, you know, keep getting their goods to market. It's Robert Miller, CEO of Brighton-based transport company SRT on the situation with produce being delivered locally and on the mainland after the collapse of transport company Scott's Logistics. The administrators of Scott's have been unable to confirm a buyer for the operation, which means selling off the assets of the company. On Friday's Country Hour, we reported on concerns from recreational deer hunters that some of the practices within the new Wild Fallow Deer Management Plan are unethical. For years, superfine wool grower Simon Cameron has been battling to protect his Midlands farm and its threatened native grasslands from the invasive deer. He's told Meg Powell his property, which is classified as Zone 3, is being unfairly targeted. The taking of uh, all year, all year round has happened in many parts of Australia, including Tasmania, for a number of years. And there have not been reports of adverse animal welfare issues. I mean, I think Andrew was a little unclear but uh, on, on Friday, but if he is referring just to Zone 1, then I, I've, I've got a couple of questions because uh, the TDAC, the organisation that he chairs, has actually agreed to the taking of all deer all year round in other parts of the state. So why focus on Zone 1? Is, it, is he really just about keeping deer numbers up, regardless of the impact on uh, landowners and environment in Zone 1? I believe he also thought the practice in other zones was unethical, not just Zone 1. He was talking about Zone 1, but in further conversation. But the, the TDAC, his organisation, has agreed to both practices in uh, in zones two and three, the rest of the state. And zone zone three includes areas like the most of the World Heritage Area. Uh, zone two includes peri-urban. Do you support the government's fallow deer management plan as it stands? Look, it's a policy document. It's out of line with the rest of Australia. Having said that, I have to acknowledge and, and thank the Minister for the new steps that have been taken to help farmers. We, we hear a fair bit about the importance of science underpinning the plan, 
yet one of its foundations, the zoning thing, is based on little more than folklore. We've still got a fair way to go. Quite honestly, I, I suspect that more and more farmers will just get on with doing what they need to do to protect their enterprises. What do you mean based on folklore? There is no scientific basis for the establishment of zone, the, the different zones that have been set in place. Um, it was just hearsay, uh, largely within the department. There was no consultation with landowners. If you could set these zones or set up some sort of system, what would you prefer? There are a biodiversity-threatening pests, just like rabbits and foxes and feral cats, and they need to be treated similarly. I don't think we need a zoning system. We just need to get on and be able to control uh, deer to the extent that we think is appropriate for our, our land and our enterprise. So to be able to eradicate them, for example, on your property? The way the deer have been managed uh, to date uh, means that it will be very hard, if not impossible, to eradicate deer. Certainly not going to do it in my lifetime. But at least we can uh, reduce their numbers. To be able to do that, we need to be able to control them on a year-round basis. So what kind of practices do you use on your farm, Simon, to um, control the deer population there? I tend to favour using a smaller number of qualified uh, shooters. We have a process here or a system in place where we uh, commercially harvest um, uh, wallaby. The the people that undertake that, and these are professional uh, shooters, um, also undertake the majority of the deer reduction work that we do. Were you part of the consultation process for getting this deer management plan? I had the opportunity, as did many others, to provide the government with input and um, I certainly uh, took advantage of that opportunity. I'm not sure that they really took much notice of what I and a few others had to say. I do have to point out that um, at least, and this only happened late last year, the Minister has uh, met a commitment made by her predecessor to make available uh, special permits for landowners in Zone 1 and, and that's uh, for those guys who are, uh, who want to protect identified natural assets that are protected under legislation, and, and that's the um, things like the endangered plant species that I referred to earlier. Simon, is there anything you want to add to all of that? There, there was the issue with lactating does that these uh, lactating does may be shot, but um, if that does happen, there is a requirement to search for the fawn, and and that's the approach that we we take. And, and we uh, reinforce that with people that shoot here. If that fails and the fawn is not found, or indeed with abandoned fawns, and this sometimes happens as well, then they'll probably fall prey to devils or eagles. That's just the way nature works. Just in relation to hunting stags in the rut, if herd reduction and, and asset protection is, is the aim, then the rut's a key time for reducing male deer numbers. There is absolutely no additional animal welfare issue in taking them at this time. Um, and interestingly, according to uh, uh, the ADA, that's um, the Australian Deer Association, the hunter group, it's a great time for trophy hunting. This is not an issue for the TDAC in zones two and three. Is this just a uh, uh, being put forward as a, as a way of keeping the numbers up in, in zone one to the detriment of... Um, landowners and others who are interested in conservation. Superfine wool grower Simon Cameron from Kingston in the, Mid- in the Midlands at least talking to Meg Powell about the operation of the deer management plan.
Still to come, looking at closer ties with India and the local wool industry and the corn harvest in the northwest. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. The Australian wool industry is looking to ramp up supply of the fibre to India and potentially recruit a much-needed workforce in the process. Wool Producers Australia CEO Joe Hall will be amongst a delegation travelling to New Delhi to attend the inaugural joint India-Australia Wool Working Group. She spoke to Cara Jeffrey about the trip to India, where currently just 5% of Australians' wool, wool clip is exported. We think since the ratification of the free trade agreement at the end of 2022 that there's potential to maybe send more wool to India. So the joint India-Australia Wool Working Group is a newly formed group. This will actually be the inaugural meeting and will be held in Delhi later this month. So we're looking to just build relationships with our Indian processing counterparts. And so it'll be a focus on sending more wool there. Will there be any focus on labour at all in any potential for uh, shearers from India or wool handlers to come to Australia and vice versa? There's been some media reports about this happening and it certainly is part of the agenda for that meeting, but it's it's very early stages yet. As you would be aware, there's um, quite a shearer shortage happening here in Australia at the moment and the industry itself is looking at any options that we can investigate to to fill that shortage. So we have had preliminary discussions and it will form part of that meeting agenda. But India has um, actually more sheep than Australia. So we view this as a potential skills transfer between the two countries and a cooperative agreement. But we've got a lot of hurdles to jump first. For example, India's uh, shearing systems are, are quite different to Australia's system. So it's very much just investigative at this point in time. And this uh, meeting will be held in Delhi and, and who, who will be in attendance from Australia? So the invitation was made to um, representatives of all of the domestic supply chain in, in Australia. So uh, the three service providers, AWI, AUX and AWTA, along with ourselves, obviously. Uh, we have uh, reps from wool producers, AWTA and the exporters, AWIs staff in country will also be in attendance I believe. And in Australia the shearer shortage is it still continuing? It is still continuing you know we're, we're hearing uh, anecdotally that it's it's everywhere it's Australia-wide the shortage we actually had a, a meeting a few weeks ago uh, which was the first national wool technical advisory group uh, and that comprised of representatives from wool producers AWI and all of the state shearing tags or the wool tags at each state level as well as the contractors and and training groups so as i said earlier we're looking at all options to address this current shortage and there is a lot of training going on at the moment and that's great to see but we've really got to hone in in those attraction and retention areas of the industry so work continues in a pretty collaborative sense in 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 that way and is the main workforce internationally still coming from new zealand yes obviously pre pandemic. That's where we supplemented our domestic workforce in the wool harvesting sector. We're not seeing New Zealanders come back in the numbers that they were pre-pandemic and and there's a number of reasons for that. I think mainly that there is a shortage of shearers in New Zealand as well um, and also their pay rates have increased uh, in New Zealand. 
here, are you hearing how much the costs are going up for shearing? The charges, is it getting quite expensive per head to shear? Because shearers have that option to basically name their price at the moment. Yeah, we're definitely hearing that. We have a supply and demand issue. And and when that happens, um, prices do increase. And I'm not really aware of anyone that's paying award rates at the moment. That will continue, I guess, for the foreseeable future until we, we build up that workforce. And are you hearing how long those delays are taking until people can get shearers to their place? I think it depends on the areas. Um, also, conditions come into it. If, if people have, um, wool growers have good, good sheds and amenities for their workers, they, they have less of a problem attracting workers. So uh, that's another issue. That was Wool Producers Australia CEO Joe Hall speaking to Cara Jeffrey about uh, shearers and closer ties with India, with that delegation travelling to India to hold talks. Now to the northwest corn harvest. It's a bit delayed, but it's finally picking time. Meg Powell dropped in to visit Matthew Young's property near Devonport. He didn't seem too worried about the timing of the crop, but he was pretty busy getting sweet corn cobs out of the field with his trusty dog Tino following closely behind. What do you like about corn? It's cold. A good corn, but not. It has to choose. So to hand pick, you basically, I start with my hand in between the stalk and the cob, and it's just a case of getting leverage and just snapping it off. And most of the time they'll snap off pretty cleanly. Sometimes they end up with a long bit of stalk on them, so you've got to snap them again to clean them up. But, yeah, when you get going, you can pick with two hands, two rows, straight through. So, yeah, it's pretty, pretty simple. So that one snapped off a bit longer. So we'll just trim that up before we put it in a box so it fits packs better. And Walking through the corn paddock, basically. Walking up one of the spray fertiliser runs because we don't plant them out because otherwise you just flatten everything with the tractor. But, yeah, we're basically in the middle of a corn crop. Fair enough. And uh, we've got Tino. Yeah, Tino, the pointer, running around, <laughs> seeing what he can find. So. Who runs through the corn so much that the fur has rubbed off the top of his ears. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we noticed that the other day. Between the bit of canola seed we've got next to here and the corn, he's starting to wear the hair off his ears. But that's all right. <laughs> he's having fun. He's a corn dog. Hey, yeah. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so we're in the middle of corn harvest at the moment. Yes, we're into the second week. So a little bit later start than we anticipated, but the weather in October, November didn't really suit getting corn in and up, so that delays the harvest at the other end. What uh, Does that cause any issues for you, or is that not really Just a Just fielding deal? phone calls with people asking, when's the corn going to be ready? And we are saying, corn. I don't know yet, it's still growing. So, yeah, it doesn't. It might shorten the season a little bit, but sometimes when you get a later start, it goes a bit later in the season. So we'll just see how it, see how it lines up. And we've got a couple of workers here today. Yeah, we use, there's a bloke we know locally up the road who subcontracts himself to us and then we use a, just an employee through left field. We've got a, a Belgian chef working for us at the moment who's doing a really good job. So. Yeah, right. So what kind of corn is this here? Uh, this is just, it's a dolphin variety um, from a grower on the mainland. Um, I can't remember the exact variety of it is. We've had a few changes in the last couple of years with different varieties being superseded and then dropped out and we did grow golden sweet improved for years but then last year that was stopped production so we're sort of just trialing bits and pieces to see what what we can find that works and this one seems pretty good so far so so it's still sort of a a work in progress the corn here 
Oh, uh, well, because there's not a lot of corn grown in Tassie for fresh market, it's a little bit hit and miss with what you get because a lot of the varieties are mainland grown and things change slightly when you grow them down here to what they get up there. So, But it seems to be producing well and it's all looking good. Why did you get into corn in the first place? Uh, we used to grow corn years ago for McCain's when they did processing corn down here. So Dad was fairly heavily involved in the corn growing and the committees and everything else. So we had a bit of a base to know about growing corn and we tried... Uh, about 16 years ago we put a crop in and probably didn't give it the time it deserved and it didn't work very well. Um, then we had we grow the fresh market celery ac as well and Dad was delivering some to a local grocer and she said, You're, why don't you try growing corn again? So we got back into it a little bit and put a bit more time into it and then, yeah, it's slowly grown from there. So other, other people grow uh, maize around here. Why aren't more people growing corn? There's a fair bit of work, fair bit of labour into growing it. Um, well growing it's pretty easy sorry it's the harvesting and the picking and packing and that sort of thing there are machines around you can do it but we actually find it more cost effective to do hand harvest Um, we can get multiple harvests where we just walked past was they've already picked through here and they're going back and doing a second pick now so we're getting basically twice the amount of corn off the one area where you go through with a machine it harvests everything and then you've got to go through and sort it all anyway and you can't get another pick off it so right yeah it's a lot of work but it's not as bad as what you think it is, but it's, yeah, the most cost-effective and efficient way to, to do it, we've found. I mean, on a beautiful day like this, it looks pretty appealing, actually, to come out and pick corn. Yeah, it can get pretty hot. Last Friday, <laughs> when it was getting up to 30 degrees, it wasn't overly unpleasant here, but that's just, you take the good with the bad. I know Monday, we're talking about getting 10 to 12 mils of rain, and we'll be here picking anyway, so... Yeah, it's just, it is what it is. Life on the it. land. That's it. So it's about three of you who are picking the corn? Yeah, majority. Kirk and Willem do the majority of the picking at the moment because I'm doing logistics and organising things and trying to get other stuff on the farm done. Um, did start out, it was just me and mum and dad picking and then, yeah, we decided that got, well, the rest of the farm got left behind. So we got Kirk to come along. He, we had a massive year the first year he came and... We've slowly sort of grown it to one other person and we're arming and arming about a third one, but yeah, don't really need it at the moment. So, How much did you plant this year? Uh, we've got about four hectares. And yeah. are you planning to expand? Uh, we'll see how this year goes. It depends entirely as to, well, the season. Demand's certainly picking up, so it just depends on, because we've still got to be able to pick it before it overmatures and keep everything flowing. So there's a point where you can't put much more in without wasting a lot. So we'll just have to see, but I reckon there'll be a little bit more expansion. Yeah. Uh, there it is, the TikTok song, It's Corn. Sounds corny. Uh, Sassafras farmer Matthew Young talking to Meg Powell and Tino the dog through his fresh corn crop, which is being harvested right now as we speak. Coming up on the Country Hour... The continuing expansion of horticulture across Australia. Also, the U.S. dairy industry expanding as well. And we'll check the latest on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Michael Delafontana. Thank you, Tony. An inquest has heard the Bureau of Meteorology's electronic flood gauge for the Mersey River wasn't working in the lead-up to a major flood event in Tasmania's northwest, which was information the State Emergency Service heavily relied on. A two-week inquest is examining the death of a Latrobe woman, Mary Alford. The 75-year-old who needed assistance walking died when the Mersey River broke its banks in June 2016 and her two-storey home became inundated with floodwater. 
US President Joe Biden says the right to vote remains under threat as he marked the 58th anniversary of the police assault on civil rights marches in the city of Selma. No uh, footage of the violence in March 1965 shocked the country and led to Congress passing the Voting Rights Act. Greek authorities have detained a station master for his alleged role in a head-on train crash that killed at least 57 people last week. He's been charged with disrupting transport and putting lives at risk, with his lawyer saying his client is devastated by the disaster. And the Weather Bureau has issued a flood watch for far north Queensland as heavy rain continues to fall across the region. Cairns has recorded 200 millimetres since 9 o'clock yesterday morning while Kuranda in to the west of the city has received 300 millimetres. A full bulletin at one o'clock. Time now to check that all-important weather. Severe weather warning for parts of Tasmania issued. To tell us more, Michael Conway from the Bureau joins us. G'day, Michael. G'day, Tony. Yeah, that severe weather warning for damaging winds. Uh, King Island, Furno Island, northeast, east coast, parts of the northwest coast, central north and midlands forecast districts. A fair whack of, of North Tasmania there. Yeah, there's um, two cold fronts coming through tomorrow. There's one early in the morning that uh, is is the weaker one uh, that may bring some thunderstorms into the north um, and that may bring, they may be a bit windy. Uh, They may require uh, some warnings for for thunderstorms for tomorrow in the north. But the one in the afternoon is the one that the warning's gone out for with a strong cold front coming through. Uh, it's, it's going to be a really windy sort of, uh, from, well, from now on, really. The winds have already started picking up in the west. But for this period from now until until halfway through Wednesday, just particularly windy. And tomorrow afternoon being the windiest with um, with the gusts of up to 100 kilometres an hour possible with the, with the um, just before the front. And uh, and also in elevated areas along the north coast, gusts up to 110, um, and sustained winds, uh, for sustained gale force winds as well, is possible along the north coast there. Yeah, and so those winds will move in tomorrow in the early afternoon. Uh, the, the stronger winds. Yes, that's right. Yep. Yeah, and then and then winds will go from west northwesterly around to westerly southwesterly as the front comes through. Okay, have we had much rainfall of note? Uh, we have had a few good t- falls, mainly in the uh, north and near the tiers. So the, the top falls for the 24 hours to 9 a.m. Erebar had 40 millimetres. Lake Gardner Dam had 35 and Quamby Bluff had 33 millimetres. Since 9 a.m. today, uh, Mount Reeds had 11 millimetres. Lake Margaret 7 and Cradle Mountain has had 6 millimetres. Okay, now for the rest of today, heading into that... Uh Area we're mentioning tomorrow. What's going? What can we expect? Uh, stronger winds. Yeah, westerly, west northwesterly winds are continuing um, until the cold front comes through. They'll 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 veer around to uh, northwesterly overnight, um, and then come around again to westerly tomorrow. There's a there's a whole heap of uh, low pressure systems um, sort of moving around each other in the bite, the Great Australian Bight. So. What's happening is they're they're the ones that are bringing this weather with quick quick fire fronts and troughs coming through over the next couple of days, Tony. Okay, and then after that, uh, will they die down later in the week? Yeah, thankfully, after a cold down Wednesday, when the snow level drops down to about eight hundred, maybe seven hundred meters, uh, and temperatures are in the mid-teens on Wednesday, uh, the weather starts to ease off gradually into Thursday into Friday, and it looks, it's looking pretty settled from Friday until early next week. Okay, some good news later in the week. 
Now we've looked at uh, at those warnings. Uh, any other warnings of note for us, uh, Michael? Uh, no, just that, that the main one being that the the severe weather warning. But uh, there is, oh, I shouldn't say no. There are wind warnings as well. They're quite they're quite interesting for tomorrow. For today, though, we've got a gale warning out for southern waters from Tasman Island to Lauraki Point. Strong wind warning for all remaining coastal waters. Tomorrow, though, a gale warning for all coastal waters and then a strong wind warning for all southeast inshore waters, except the Derwent Estuary. Also, the Central Plateau Lakes has a strong wind warning for tomorrow. OK. Uh, but probably not, not the uh, day or two or three to go out in the waters. I wouldn't imagine, but um, I'll run through the, through the winds for you. Tony, for the if you're going out on the waters today, the, the northwesterly uh, northwesterly winds um, 20 to 30 knots, reaching up to 35 knots about the south in the afternoon. Tomorrow, the northwesterly winds 25 to 35 knots, increasing to west to northwesterly 30 to 40 knots for a time in the afternoon for an extended period of time, turning westerly from in the west in the evening. The swells about in the western south, we've got a westerly swell today of two and a half to four metres. Tomorrow, three to four metres, increasing to four to six metres in the afternoon. In the north today is a westerly swell of one to two metres offshore. Tomorrow, uh, one to two metres again offshore, increasing to two and a half to four metres offshore, so that's unusual for the north. In the east, there's a northeasterly swell of one to two metres um, and also a light south to southwesterly swell of 0.5 to one metre. In, tomorrow, northeasterly at about one metre decaying in the morning and a south to southwesterly at 0.5 to one metre. And the wave runners? Cape Sorrell's at 3.9 metres and Mariah Island is at two metres currently. And just before you go, Glenn asks on the text line, Hi Tony, can you ask what Flinders will be like towards the end of the week, probably Thursday, Friday time, weather on Flinders? Yeah, yeah that, the winds will be backing right off. Uh, we've got... Um, I'm just having a quick flick here. It's looking like, yeah, quite a little, a slight westerly breeze won't, and mild conditions won't be either hot or cold. Beauty. Thank you for that, Michael. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. See you, Michael Conway from the Bureau. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up, we'll talk about uh, the expansion of the dairy industry in the US. Talking expansion, though, new data released shows the production value of the horticulture industry in Australia has grown by $6 billion in the past decade. Hort Innovation released their latest edition of the Horticulture Statistics Handbook. It covers 75 crops across fruit, vegetables, nuts and green life. The numbers show growth in both production values and volumes across the industry, despite many producers facing short-term challenges in recent years. Annie Brown spoke to Lucy Noble, the Data and Insight Supply Specialist for Hort Innovation. In terms of volume, when we look at the long term, it is a positive story, and that is that the volume is increasing across the board. So those four categories of fruit, nut, veg and amenity have all increased in volume rather consistently over the last 10 years. Volume, this latest reporting period, did come back to the vegetables, and that's no surprise given that supply has really been squeezed as a result of the flooding. Um, We're hearing, obviously, more recently about shortages in some of those key vegetable crops like potatoes, and the full extent to that has not been realised yet, so won't be necessarily fully reflected in this handbook. But we're seeing volume growth over all of our commodities. Some really impressive standouts are things like um, in almonds, where we've seen plantings 20 years ago were 6% of what they are today. So 
in terms of a reflection on looking at volume, we're seeing some really impressive growth in key, um, particularly export commodities when we look at volume over the last 10 years. Yeah, and looking at the export stats there for Victoria in particular, almonds is the biggest thing that we, we export out of Victoria at the mm, moment. Absolutely. and I mean, in terms of pulling its weight, Victoria is responsible for producing 49% of fresh horticulture produce um, that's exported. So there is a lot of value coming out of um, Victoria in terms of a horticulture production value, particularly in those key export markets. Almonds are obviously large player. It's no surprise that things like table grapes out there and then not far behind is a lot of those stone fruits as well. So the nectarines, plums, um, cherries, peaches as well. And to go back a little bit now to, to look at values and the growth that you've seen there in the last 10 years, what, what can you tell us about that and what's been happening there? Yeah, I mean, well, it's one thing to say that volumes come up, but if you don't see value track, then we've obviously got to be an issue there. But thankfully, that's a story that we kind of don't have to deal with because there's been so much growth within our domestic channel, um, but also within that, those export markets. So if you look at the moment, we're, we're exporting around 11.5% of the volume of Australian produce um, to our international trade markets as well, which is really impressive because as, a, as an island nation, we're very much contained within our, our markets. So we supply most, if not all, of our fresh produce. But what we're really seeing is the growth in the last 10 years is being particularly pushed by the, the growth in exports. It is important to note that the information in these statistics cover the last 10 years up until the 2001-2022 financial year, not including any of the weather events that have occurred in the last seven months. Michael Coote is the CEO of Ozveg, the peak industry body for the Australian vegetable and potato industries. And he says that while the long-term growth has been impressive, in the short term, the industry has struggled against weather events, labour shortages and the high cost of production. Personally, I was quite surprised to see the vegetable category growing by 13% from $4.9 billion to $5.5 billion in production value for the, for the FY22 financial year. Um, I guess coming out of COVID, lots of people are still eating uh, fresh Aussie produce and needing staple vegetables. So that's probably driven some of that pricing, uh, that, that increase in industry value. Uh, however, the total value of the industry doesn't uh, always tell the whole story. Industry growth uh, at a macro level is one thing. However, our industry has been really struggling over the last, you know, 20, 12, 24 months with, uh, you know, weather events, higher production costs and labour shortages, uh, which, you know, you would think have uh, has seen a reduction in the, the volumes of fresh vegetables making it onto the market. Uh, but the higher uh, price doesn't necessarily reflect the total cost that a, that a grower incurs to grow and supply a product for Australian consumers. One um, particular crop in, that was pointed out in these the key findings in this it was about the leafy salad, salad vegetables, uh, which also reached new production volumes and increasing by 5% uh, just last year, marking the highest year of supply of fresh leafy salad vegetables. Um, can you tell me a bit about what's going on with yeah, leafy salad vegetables at the moment? Yeah, look, the, the industry has been growing and, and obviously grew by 5% in the last financial year, which is, uh, which is quite impressive given, um, given some of the challenges that sector's faced. Uh, I think that with food service coming back on um, after COVID um, as a category and a channel for growers to supply uh, probably has driven quite a bit of that increase. Um, exports is coming on in a small way, um, but a number of crops have, you know, have seen, you know, good, good uh, increases in that period. You know, the onion industry um, 
grew to a new value of 249 million. Um, you know, our, our humble carrot exports, you know, in the last 10 years have grown from 51 million to 92 million, um, and, and continue to be the star performer for, for vegetable exports. So, Whilst we can also look at individual individual crops and how they're faring, um, it can be a mixed bag amongst the um, you know amongst different different vegetable products. The long term trend is growth. You know we've got population growth, we've got export export market growth. Uh, you know new new channels coming online all the time, which is really great. So it means there's markets that growers can play in but we need to ensure that they remain viable and, and, and primarily the domestic market, Australian consumers, are where um, you know, 90% of Australian vegetables are still consumed. So the, you know, the focus for our growers is really on maintaining supply to, to feed Australia uh, and, 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 and remaining profitable even in difficult years. That's Michael Coote, the CEO of Ausveg, and we also heard Lucy Noble, data and insight supply specialist for Hort Innovation, speaking there with Annie Brown about the big expansion of horticulture. Some interesting stats there for onions and carrots, of which Tasmania grows quite a bit, expanding industries. One industry locally that isn't expanding necessarily in Australia is the dairy industry. It's been declining for a while and in many countries around the world, but one place that is not happening is the USA. So what are they doing right? Meg Powell ran into a visitor to Tasmania at the recent dairy conference who could shed some light on the situation. My name is Mike McCulley. I'm with the McCulley Group in America, just outside Chicago, and I own a consulting business that works primarily with dairy and food companies, not only around the U.S., but around the world. Welcome to Tasmania, Mike. First time? It is my first time in Tasmania. really enjoyed it. I've been in Australia a couple of times before, but this is the first time that we've had a chance to visit uh, Tasmania and Hobart and have really enjoyed our time here. And 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 particularly the weather as as it's snowing back home. Yeah, right. So even this grey sky is pretty good to you. Absolutely. Mike, you've got quite an interesting background. You've worked in a a few different areas. Tell me about those. So actually, go way way back to the beginning, I grew up on a farm, a grain and beef cattle farm in northern Illinois. And then I started working in uh, Kraft, Kraft Foods in 1996 in dairy purchasing. And I've been in the dairy industry for over 25 years, uh, about 16 years at Kraft. And then about 11 years ago, I left to start my own consulting business where I work uh, pretty much exclusively with dairy. You're um, probably as good a person as anyone then to tell me, what does the dairy industry look like over in the U.S. at the moment? The, uh, the dairy industry in, in, the, in America is, I'd say, quite dynamic. There's a lot of investment going on uh, in, in contrast to what we've talked about here the last day or so at the conference about the, the shrinking of the Australian dairy industry. The U.S. has continued to grow. It, it, milk production grows roughly 1% to 1.5% year over year, and it's been doing that for decades. And, and that, that trend is going to continue. And there's wow. lots of investment at the farm level, particularly at large farms, and uh, the number of, of dairy plants that are being built right now, there's over $5 billion of investments in new dairy plants that are being constructed this year out into next year. Wow. I'm, I mean, over here, we're consolidating dairy processes at the moment, and we're, we're shrinking, as you said before. What's your secret? What's your fertilizer as such over in the U.S.? So the, the cost structure is up right now for feed and fertilizer and land prices, but for the large farms that are expanding and are going to grow, it's just, it's, uh, it's just a, a blip for them, and they just continue to invest and build uh, dairies, 10,000, 20,000, or larger cow dairies. And they see the long-term investment paying off. 
they have a, a low-cost production model that they can uh, that they can generate a good cash return. And, and it's also interesting, I had several questions yesterday about, well, are these corporate farms? And in the U.S., we really don't have corporate farms. These are largely, you know, some of the, the biggest farms in, in the country uh, are still family-owned. Now, it could be multiple family members or multiple families, but we really don't have outside investment money and things like that in, in dairy farming. It's still very much like 99-plus percent uh, our family-owned uh, enterprises. Wow. So very different here in Tasmania, particularly up in the northwest, where we have some of the most uh, corporatized farms in the, in the country. What can Australia learn from what's happening in the U.S.? I, I, one of the messages I had, I think it resonated, and a lot of people talked to me after, it, after the, uh, mentioning it, is adopting a growth mindset. And I think that, that is, again, that's not only U.S. agriculture, but U.S. dairy industry has a growth mindset to where we're going to continue to grow. We have demand to meet, not only domestically, but in the export market and global market, and figuring out, you know, how do we make that happen? So that's, and again, it's part of it is just a psychology to where we're going to grow, not, not shrink. Uh, some of the comments I heard yesterday was, you know, you can't, you can't shrink your way to prosperity. Uh, you know, and one of the things I learned a long time ago was if you're not growing, you're dying. And, and that's, again, that, I think that's a perspective that a lot of the in people in the U.S. dairy industry have is that we're going to continue to grow. We're going to continue to prosper because of we have supply growth, but then that's meeting the demand growth uh, globally as well as in the domestic market. Here in Tasmania, where we have quite a lot of corporate farms, does that restrict growth? Is that a problem? Is it too late? I, I don't think so. I, I'm, it's, uh, I'm actually on the board of directors of a corporate farm in New Zealand. So I, I know the New Zealand model. I know where the corporate farms are. That, that's really the future of New Zealand dairy farming, our corporate farms. And, and that could very well be the case for Australia as well. I, I, don't, I don't know if that's good or bad. I think it, it is what it is. And if that is a model that would actually bring in growth, and if that you know, growth is the, the end goal, then the corporate farming model might be a way to get to that, that end, the means to that end. And what's, um, what's the main takeaway that you wanted people to bring people here at the conference? I, I think there's a couple. One, people like dairy. Consumers around the world like dairy foods. They like cheese. They like butter. They like milk. And I think even the last couple years have seen even more uh, awareness and appreciation for dairy, given with COVID and the, you know, the, the eating at home Return and cooking, cooking and things like that, mm. cooking. And, and also, you know, a country like China, when they have said, hey, milk makes a body stronger, so you need to drink more dairy or eat milk or eat more dairy products. So I think dairy is, is very well positioned that there's, again, there's growing demand globally for dairy as you've got millions and millions and millions of people that are moving from, uh, you know, in, in developing countries from a very basic diet to a more westernized diet with animal proteins and, and dairy foods. We've got a huge opportunity to do that, and we need to be able to, to grow, uh, again, the supply side to be able to meet that growing demand. The challenges are very similar to what we're seeing in, in the U.S., what we're seeing in Europe, what we're seeing in New Zealand. So one of the messages is you're not alone. Uh, others are going through the same sort of challenges and questions. And you know, my, my uh, goal was to provide some you know, perspective on what's going on in the U.S. and you know, maybe some things that could be adopted here. I talked about small farm models, large farm models, agritourism, and just being you know, more advocacy for dairy farming and farming in general to make consumers you know, continue to be, you know, be attracted to dairy.
It's Mike McCulley, consultant, talking there to Meg Powell about the US dairy scene, which is growing, unlike Australia, and is mostly family-owned again, unlike here in Tasmania. Afternoons with Joel Reinberger. Now, I seem to remember that you started a festival here called All Tomorrow's Shoeys about 10 years ago. Are shoeys a part of the Smith Street Band repertoire? Not so much anymore. We all got in serious relationships with people who just wanted us to stop drinking out of shoes, which is not unreasonable. I think. Um, you don't want to pass on tenure of the tongue to another person, do you? I have size 15 feet, so I'm doing a full pipe. Weekdays from 1.30pm on ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Finally, today, when you're a camel farmer in, Tas- in, in Australia, at least in Tasmania, why not? Your day job is already a little unusual. Don't see too many camels in Tasmania, do we? The young farmer in this next story is perhaps even more so. Yasmin Brisbane sidelines as an actor and is passionate about teaching people about camels. Sharing her antics online has opened up a whole new world to the young entrepreneur and brought big growth to the family business. On this property... Farming comes first. But here, filming the farming comes in a close second. G'day everyone, my name is Yasmin. This is my family camel dairy on the Sunshine Coast, Queensland and here are five things you didn't know about camels. Yasmin Brisbane is the face in the spotlight but she has competition when it comes to being the star of the show. Come on, Patty. Everyone comes to the farm. Where's Patrick? Where's Patrick the camel? Patrick found fame online after Yasmin filmed one of his escapades and uploaded it to the video sharing app TikTok. How the hell did you get down there? Patrick, far out. His status as an overnight viral sensation came as somewhat of a surprise for the young farmer. I know. It was just a normal day. Like, he got stuck on the opposite side of a fence and I went and rescued him. And I was talking to him the whole time because, like all crazy animal people, I talk to my animals and having this argument with him and, and I filmed it all and I just uploaded it thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, it's just a funny little video. 8.3 million views later, that funny little video has had a big impact. Oh, absolutely. We've had, uh, you know, we've had at least a 30 to 40, if not 50% increase in, you know, in our tourism. And so, yes, from a monetary value, it's fantastic. I think it's just a lot of exposure and also just getting people to fall in love with camels and and understand that, you know, the milk and them as an animal aren't as strange and weird and gross as everyone thinks that they are. (laughs) Come on, help! Despite being home to somewhat superstar residents, Q Camel is first and foremost a family-run organic camel dairy. Come on, darlings! Thank you, Mia. The property is called Caloundra Downs and it's overlooking the Glasshouse Mountains on Queensland's Sunshine Coast. Hello, Camilla. Right now, they're running 80 camels here. They're milked once daily, first up in the morning, and then spend their days grazing with the mothers and their babies kept together. Come on. All righty, darlings, watch out. Just the adults, please. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you. Watch out. Thank you, Camilla. Lauren Brisbane is all for Yasmin putting a different spin on modern farming by sharing snippets of her daily life online. 
I love what she's been doing and, and I think the great thing about it is that she's been teaching people about camels and that they're not the scary creatures that lots of people think they are um, and that they're kind and gentle and that they've got a really great purpose here in Australia. Okay, everything is set up. For Yasmin, sharing her life as a camel farmer with the world gives her a chance to combine her two big passions. I'd always loved performing um, and I finally went to film school. And then I did that for a few years and then I was working more and more on the farm and then I just got to a point where I just couldn't choose between the two and, and I had so much responsibility here and I really loved it. And the things with filming and performing arts are going really well so I, I just kind of made them work and just made them this hybrid. I really wanted to like educate people about camels and show this. It's a really cool life that I live so I really wanted to show that off. So I started posting last year and then I got to 500,000 followers pretty quickly and all of a sudden it just became this big beast and it's, it's really become a big part of the business and how we run things here. And although she doesn't make money from the actual video content online, what she can do is channel that online audience to the farm. So TikTok is a really great sort of funneling platform. So you can funnel people to um, things like Instagram or YouTube or whatever you want to. I funnel a lot of that into the business. Um, I'll start funneling it more into Instagram. And when you're on Instagram, you can start making brand deals and things like that. There are highs and lows of living your life with a big digital presence, though. And Yasmin has experienced both. People kind of demand that sort of free entertainment and they kind of take a lot of liberties with you sometimes. So I talk with a lot of other female farmers and content creators about parasocial relationships and basically people thinking that because you're on their screens and you entertain them, they have a right to tell you things and comment on things and accuse you of things. Don't get me wrong, 95% of my experience is amazing, but it, it can be exhausting. Yasmin's parents are both very supportive of her work and they value what she puts in, both physically on the farm and online showcasing it. It's a lovely part of the way we live now is that people get to see what other people do around the world and also enjoy it and feel like they're there, you know, but it, it brightens their day and they learn something new and I think, it, you know, it opens the world up to so many people, it's great. For 2023, there are plans underway to take QCamel to the world in a physical sense, in addition to online. This year, we're going to export, so that's our next step. We've got customers waiting, particularly in Asia, for our milk, so that's our next step. They're so beautiful and they're affectionate and they just, they just like creep into your soul and they're just so divine. I just love being out here with them. That's Yasmin Brisbane from Q Camel. Ending that report from Courtney Wilson. And you can see the full story on Landline on iView on ABC TV or uh, on your, uh, yeah, you can actually see it on your phone if you want. ABC Rural Online, you can see that on your phone as well. Uh, plenty of great stories there. And also our ABC Rural Facebook page. Uh, and lots of stories and uh, lots of comments too on both of those. We'll have a podcast of today's program up for you shortly. That's the show for today. We'll catch you after midday tomorrow.